This is CrossCut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard. This week, and throughout the month of December, we're doing something a little different. We're revisiting some episodes from earlier in the year and updating them with what's happened since. Today, we're looking back at what impacts the end of Roe v. Wade has had on Washington state. No state in the United States will be more protected, more vigilant, and more successful in protecting women's right of choice than the state of Washington. Reporter Megan Burbank has been covering reproductive access in the region for years now. And last year, she reported on what the first six months of a post-Roe Washington looked like. We're going to replay that episode now. Afterward, stick around for a new conversation with Megan, who fills us in on the ongoing trends that we're seeing and what we might expect in the new year. Now here's that episode from January. I know that we were sort of hearing rumblings ever since the recent appointments onto the Supreme Court, but I will say that for myself, I was relatively shocked when Roe fell. I was just curious from your perspective, um, you know, someone who's been covering these issues for, you know, a decade plus, were you surprised? I wasn't surprised. I was, I did, I was shocked. Let's put it that way. Um, I think that even if you are expecting something to happen, there's a profound difference between anticipating something and then actually experiencing it. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedents, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Leaving it to states to decide whether abortion is legal. My name is Megan Burbank. I am a freelance reporter and editor and for Crosscut and everywhere else I write for, I cover reproductive health policy, which lately has included a lot of coverage of abortion policy in the absence of Roe versus Wade. I started covering it in, I guess, 2011, back when I was an intern at The Stranger, a news intern. And there was a, a bill being introduced at the legislature to regulate crisis pregnancy centers, which are these sort of Uh, Things that resemble clinics but are not clinics um, and are essentially set up to dissuade people from having abortions. And so that was how I got into it was through covering that and just realizing that there was this vast landscape of abortion restrictions and efforts to discourage people from having abortions. And and that, of course, was when we still had Roe in place. So it was a pretty rich political landscape then. And I think it's gotten even more complicated since. Around September 2021, I was doing a lot of coverage of SB8 in Texas, which was their restrictive six-week abortion ban that includes this provision where you can, private citizens can sue people for aiding and abetting abortion. And one thing that I can say is that a lot of the providers and activists I was speaking to during that time were all really gearing up for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. When I began to hear it from people who work in abortion care and uh, reproductive health policy, speaking about it with such a sense of clarity, I was I, I was convinced by that. I was wondering if you could pinpoint a few of the impacts that you've seen in Washington state because of the fall of Roe. Absolutely. And I want to have a caveat up top, too, which is that a lot of these things were 
already going on in some form before Roe versus Wade was overturned. I think when we see coverage of Roe versus Wade, a lot of it sort of takes on this black and white overnight shift framing, this idea that we had access and now we don't. And the reality is that for many people, they didn't meaningfully have access before Roe versus Wade was overturned because it is so geography dependent. Um, And a good example of that is here in Washington. We serve and have served for a long time many patients crossing over the border from Idaho. There has been a gradual increase, and I would say, and that's tied to Roe specifically because Idaho has three abortion bans. The highest court in the state upheld three separate restrictive abortion laws. Yeah, uh, it's confusing. There's so many. Planned Parenthood versus the state of Idaho. This, of course, over those restrictive abortion laws that became law just in the last year. Yeah, so they have a a near total ban, which essentially bans all abortions. And then they also have a Texas style six week ban that allows for these sort of vigilante lawsuits. So the impact of that is that more and more people who need abortions are coming to Washington from Idaho, which in turn puts a strain on providers in Washington which in turn can impact access in Washington because if you are if you live here and you're seeking care but you've got all this demand on clinics it can be much harder to get treatment in a timely fashion. I think that there is this sort of idea that we're on you know eastern Washington is on the border with Idaho that's where most of the demand would be. In reality it's more complicated. For example, Cedar River Clinics, which has several locations throughout Western Washington, actually was one of the few networks to open a new clinic um, in Yakima. When I spoke to their communications person most recently, she told me that their greatest influx of of patients from out of state wasn't actually from Idaho, it was from Texas. Um, And it was directly tied to SB8 and that legislation. So there is an increase in people seeking care out across state lines, but in some sense it was already it was already happening. What has the fall of Roe catalyzed politically in Washington? Yeah, there's a lot going on. We know Washington State has a long record of standing up for a woman's right of choice. I mean, I think that's one of the first things that happened after the Roe decision initially leaked was that we saw Washington elected officials um, affirming their support for abortion rights and and trying to come up with these sort of like creative ways of of addressing it, which I think is interesting because for a long time, I think the right has been very creative in its in its sort of efforts to target and prosecute and restrict abortion. And so it's interesting to see more of that energy um, happening on the left right now. I mean, one of the things that our governor is trying to do is to establish a constitutional amendment for the state protecting abortion access. I will be asking the legislators to pass a constitutional amendment under our state's constitution to protect women in our state. When that news came out, I was almost a little skeptical about it because as a person who covers this, I was like, well, we have, we actually have robust state protections for abortion access already. So what, are you simply duplicating that? Is this just sort of a political smoke and mirrors situation? Um, and the argument behind it actually is just that it's a stronger protection for abortion rights. It's much more difficult to repeal a constitutional amendment than it is to repeal state law. So I think the you know, the thinking behind it is, 
well, the makeup of our state legislature right now is in support of abortion rights. But if that were to change at any point in time, it's possible that we could see that state level protection go away. And so that we've seen sort of efforts like that to to strengthen existing protections. Um, the other thing to note is that this was this was already happening. Mm. I feel like I just say that all the time. Um, <laughs> the theme here, yeah. Before Roe vs. Wade was overturned, a policy called the Affirm Abortion Access Act passed, and it it essentially clarifies that advanced practice clinicians, um, which would include people like physician assistants or nurse practitioners. Um, can provide abortion care if it's part of their scope, scope of practice. Mm. And it also establishes protections for pregnant people so that they won't be criminalized for pregnancy outcomes that mm. they have. Um, and so, and that's an important point because one of the things that we do see in states with really restrictive abortion laws is that um, pregnant people have been prosecuted for things like miscarriage, mm -hmm. Um and some states actually have something called fetal homicide laws, which can be enforced in that type of situation. And and Washington actually has a fetal harm law. And I, you know, I don't envision that it would be enforced in that way. But there was a case, I believe, in Spokane um, a couple of years ago where that someone actually did attempt to investigate a miscarriage. So it's mm. wow. it's worth noting that. There have been these ongoing efforts to affirm reproductive rights in those types of situations in Washington. Something that you've reported on recently is an uptick in um, protests and harassment and violence outside of um, clinics where abortions are provided. And it seems like some of the data and the stories that have come out about this are referring to the past year or two. So in some ways, it's like yeah, is it is it the fall of Roe or is it something else? I think yes, both, both and. Yeah. <laughs> so there's good data from the National Abortion Federation that there's been an increase in clinic harassment and even violence over the past year or the past couple years rather, um before Roe versus Wade was overturned. Mm -hmm. I think the effect of Roe is has been sort of instrumental in focusing that type of protesting um on states like ours, on states like Washington, like Oregon, like California, that have chosen to uphold abortion access. And, you know, I did a story recently for Crosscut about the church at Planned Parenthood, which was, is a group affiliated with Covenant Church in Spokane that held these protests. Well, they don't call them protests. They call them, they're basically church services. So my thought was, let's take the church to what we believe with our faith is the gates of hell. Mm -hmm. uh, that, but they held them outside of Planned Parenthood's um, health center in Spokane and actually just were ordered to pay civil damages for violations of state law that occurred during those protests. Mm. Tonight, a Washington State Superior Court judge ruled in favor of Planned Parenthood by granting a preliminary injunction against an anti-abortion group. But I spoke with their founder recently, and one of the things that he told me was that they're turning their attention away from states like Tennessee, which is where he lives now, and they're turning it toward places like Washington because this is where abortion mm. is still happening. Yeah. Right? So if you live in a state where an abortion ban goes into effect, you may no longer have a clinic to pick it, mm -hmm. right? 
And so I think that there is, we are seeing this sort of movement from, from those states to states like ours, because this is where abortion is still happening and actually where we can see from data that abortion care has, has gone up because of demand from out-of-state patients. There's something else interesting that you pointed out in, in some of your reporting about some, I don't know, perhaps loose relationship between the rise in violence on the, on the right and this kind of protest outside of abortion clinics. Yeah, yeah. You know, a good example of that is, so the church at Planned Parenthood, the group does have support from folks like Joey Gibson, who is a, the founder of Patriot Prayer, which is a far-right group. Um, and so there is this sort of nexus between sidewalk counseling, um, which is when protesters stand outside of clinics and try to talk people out of having abortions, um, or these sort of more performative protests outside of clinics, and this sort of broader right-wing agenda, which is rooted in this idea of white nationalism. And I think that it's kind of important to contextualize it in that way because I think that people feel all kinds of ways about abortion, right? Like, I report mm -hmm. on this. I know it. People tell me all the time. But I think that there's a significant chasm of difference between feeling complicated about something and thinking no one should have a right to it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's helpful to look at where that impulse is coming from and I think for a lot of these groups, it's tied into this broader agenda of this sort, this very sort of um, right-wing idea of what a, what people should do, what a family should look like, who should have rights in this country. And it's also tied into a lot of anti-LGBTQ sentiment mm -hmm. um, and racism and that kind of thing. And I think it's it's helpful to understand it within that context because, you know, like I said, people people feel complicated about abortion, but that doesn't, we don't necessarily see that translate to polling, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Americans overall do not support overturning Roe versus Wade. 70% of Americans say it should be left to the woman and her doctor. One of the interesting things that we've, that that's sort of been thrown into sharp relief since Roe was overturned is that there actually is a lot of popular support for abortion. And I think that it does a disservice to to readers when we report on this issue as if, you know, it's these two sides that are in opposition and equally weighted a 50-50 divide because it's not really that. Um, it's actually like the majority of Americans do support abortion access. And there are there are those who don't, right? Like there's this vocal segment of the right wing who are very opposed to abortion. Um, and and that's worth reporting on, too. But I think a lot of coverage tends to sort of take this 50-50 approach, which actually doesn't represent how most people feel about abortion. The first ballot test for abortion rights, and the answer was clear, and it was decisive, and it was in Kansas. Which made abortion rights a part of the state constitution. Voters weighing in in favor of that proposal, 55% to 45%. Organizers behind that petition to put the issue on the ballot say Michigan is just the beginning. As you look ahead 
at 2023, which is how is it already 2023? But anyway, um, is there something that that you're going to be watching? Oh, I think there are so many things. This is a an interesting time to cover the issue that I cover, to say the least. You know, I think one of the things that I'm going to be curious to see is if the sort of renewed interest in reproductive rights that cropped up after Roe was overturned, if that's really going to have an impact um, on local politics in terms of the policies that uh, make it through the legislature this year. There's been a slate of reproductive health policies that are set to be introduced, and I think it's going to be interesting to see if they actually have legs. Another question that's come up is... One of the most surprising things that happened in the wake of Rose reversal was this sort of renewed municipal support for abortion funds, which are these volunteer operated funds that assist people with paying for abortions, but also for paying with paying for costs related to them. So things like childcare, things like transportation, lodging, that kind of thing. And what's been interesting to me is to see major municipal and state funding going to those groups. I think that there's been more like an increased sort of awareness of the work that they do um, since Roe. And I'm just going to be interested to see if that continues. And I also think, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the anti-abortion movement sort of pivots, um, because I think, you know, in some sense, they've gotten this great victory, right? Roe versus Wade is overturned. That's really something that they've been fighting for. I just think that the types of policies that maybe introduced at the state level are going to be unpopular. Um, not in Washington. That'll be elsewhere. But but I think it's it, it all has an impact on us, right? Because we are a state that provides this service when there are efforts to restrict it elsewhere. We do sort of, we feel ripple effects from that. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for coming in to talk today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. Now, here's the new conversation with Megan about where things stand today. So Megan, the last time you and I talked about Roe v. Wade was almost a year ago. What strikes you as one of the most significant developments in the past year? when it comes to the impacts from the fall of Roe on Washington? So I think there are a couple of things. One that I think is really notable is, you know, last time we talked, we were talking a lot about the influx of patients from Idaho into Washington. Um, That's continued. And, of course, that was already something that was going on before the Dobbs decision. So one of the things that I've heard most most recently from a provider who I speak to pretty regularly is that before they were doing abortions for people from Idaho and now they're doing all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. One of them is also that Idaho has lost maternity care um, on top of abortion care in the past year with two major closures of hospitals that had had um, labor and delivery and OBGYN services. So that sort of area of need has grown. Quick clarification, too. Idaho, as I recall, the last time we talked, had sort of three different bans in play. It is three. 
And I think only one of those is in effect. One of the most restrictive laws is in Idaho, where abortion is a felony under most circumstances. It has a, a trigger ban, and it also has a gestational ban at six weeks. And Idaho also has enacted new restrictions. <laughs> so it's a pretty fluid situation. And they also have new in 2023, a law that criminalizes assisting minors who leave the state to access care, which they've framed as abortion trafficking. It's called the abortion trafficking law. It's been signed by Idaho's Republican governor, Brad Little, and it can mean two to five years in prison if anyone is convicted. And then I would say another issue that comes up is just a real lack of clarification about what abortion exceptions look like. Yeah. I've read a lot about them, and there's never, like, a clear mechanism for enforcing them. A lot of them require involvement from law enforcement. And so in practice, they don't actually... I just question their, like, actionability for patients. But one of the things that's been going on across the country is just a lack of clarity around when a physician can provide care. And there's been some reporting from providers who have had to withhold abortion care, which can create really dangerous situations, especially if someone is having a miscarriage or other pregnancy complication. Um, and I think that's one of the factors that we've seen leading to the closure of these larger maternal fetal healthcare units because there's such a lack of clarity that it's putting people into these really dangerous situations. Idaho's laws are fueling a maternal care exodus. More than half of the state's high-risk OBs will be gone by the end of the year. I think that's pretty notable. And then something else that I just think is interesting is that even though we've seen more and more of the restrictions go into effect, we're also seeing a lot of um, popular support for abortion, electoral support specifically. Election after election, even in states that are not considered really blue or even purple states, we are seeing popular support for abortion access. So that to me is kind of like a central irony that's going on right now. Um, where access continues to be in this pretty acute phase, but then at the same time, there is support for it. Overnight, Democrats on a winning streak, scoring victories in Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia, powered by support for abortion rights. What I found most interesting was that in Ohio, voters passed a measure establishing a constitutional amendment that's protecting access to abortion in the state. And so we are seeing these particular state-level protections pass in places where you wouldn't expect to see them, necessarily. Speaking of Ohio, what they just passed was a constitutional amendment to guarantee the right to an abortion in that state. And that is not what exists in Washington state. Right. You were talking about that last time. I think there was sort of speculation that Governor Inslee was sort of interested in that idea. That did not really progress. It was a, a subject that came up in conversation. But I think, you know, when I speak to people who work in abortion provision now, they're pretty focused on other pieces of policy that came out of last year's legislative session, including just setting up greater supports for abortion access in the state. Yeah, and there was, in June, kind of a suite of laws that were passed. Governor Jay Inslee signed a total of five health care-related bills. Sometimes referred to as shield laws. New laws shield abortion and gender-affirming care patients and their providers from out-of-state prosecution or disciplinary action. Yeah, so we have a shield law, and 
This is something that we've seen sort of pop up across the country in states that have a more established history of supporting abortion rights than, say, Ohio. And they're not really legally tested yet. Okay. So yeah, the, the level of protection is somewhat unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what I can say is that there has been documentation of physicians in states with shield laws now um, prescribing abortion pills to patients in states uh, that no longer have access. So there is potential that it's setting up this expanded access, but it's also something that if you speak with legal experts, they're pretty quick to emphasize that we don't, there's not case law on it that hasn't been tested. So um, it is sort of an open legal question is how one described it. And then, of course, medication abortion, while it's now used, I think, in more than half of abortions, is only effective up to 10 weeks gestation. And so people who are seeking abortion later on in their pregnancies may not have that as an option. And one of the things that has become pretty clear in my reporting is that because we have these stringent restrictions going into effect in other states, it is creating delays in care, even for people in states like ours. So I I spoke with a provider at UW Medicine, which is an abortion provider here, and she told me that she was seeing these um, even slight delays happening in terms of care for getting patients scheduled. And abortion is, is complex because pregnancy is not As she put it, it's not a static condition. It changes with time. And so the longer you wait, the safety of the procedure doesn't change, but the complexity of it can change and the cost of it can change. Back to some updates since the last time we talked. You mentioned that there was some potential for cities and maybe even states to create funds to support costs associated with traveling for abortion care. And has that been happening? That's been happening. We actually saw that with, um, in Washington, we saw unprecedented municipal funding going to the Northwest Abortion Access Fund, which is a regional abortion fund that serves Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska. And, well, in the past year, I think they've served people from a lot of other states, too. And so they received public funding for the first time, which was a big deal. But one of the things that I have heard from providers and from Planned Parenthood is that there was a lot of initial support and outrage and anger around this issue when the Dobbs decision leaked and when Roe was really overturned and people saw that that was a possibility. But I think that since we've gotten further and further away from it, there has been sort of a pullback on that where people are not necessarily wanting to spend hours and hours thinking about how inaccessible abortion remains. But it's still, it's it's certainly still an issue. Yeah. You were kind of wondering also the last time we talked about what might happen now to the anti-abortion movement. Like, was there going to be some kind of big pivot that we saw because, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade was such a goal for so long for so many in that movement? And so... I was curious if you've observed anything in the past year and you're reporting on that front. 
Yeah, well, we've certainly seen a pivot, I think, away from states that have active abortion bans into states like ours. What that looks like day to day really varies. So, you know, I spoke with Planned Parenthood's CEO a couple weeks ago, and she told me that they weren't encountering an influx of protesters. But at the same time, there have been protests at the University of Washington at their clinic for the first time recently. So that's just sort of a strange development that's that's come up in the past couple years. I do think that if you are part of the pro-life movement, this is a bit of a weird time because it's become increasingly clear that there's just not the political will behind banning abortion in any in any kind of wholesale way. And so I think I think there's been a lot of sort of pivoting and strategizing about how to get people sort of back into that activism and that work. Um, One of the things that we've seen is an increase in attacks on things like gender-affirming care. To me, what I find interesting about that is that a lot of the language, a lot of the mechanisms, and a lot of the actors behind those bills are identical to the ones behind abortion bans. Mm. So it's a very similar strategy. It's just a different focus. And so I think we're probably going to be seeing a lot more of that. What do you think people who are concerned about this issue, interested in this issue, what should they look out for in the next year? Or what's next for Washington? I mean, I anticipate that we'll be seeing more legislative efforts to bolster access here. I think what we saw last session was just the beginning of really taking seriously like what can happen at the state level to preserve care. I also think we're going to be seeing a lot more demand on abortion providers in Washington and We're going to continue to see what the CEO of Planned Parenthood has described as abortion deserts, which are places where they don't have abortion access and I think more broadly a loss of maternity care. And I think that that's already sort of exacerbating a perinatal health crisis that we're seeing nationwide, especially for Black, Indigenous, people of color. And I think something to remember if you're in Washington is that abortion is legal and accessible here. That's that's an important point. It might seem like an obvious one. But one of the things that I'm that I've heard from specifically legal advocates is that there has been so much confusion that abortion bans and just the sort of political climate since Dobbs has sown that people, even in states that have access, are calling up a legal assistance helpline because they think they don't. And so I think that we've got to expect that the confusion and lack of clarity will continue. And I think that that just making sure that we're looking at this issue and really acknowledging the complexity of it and understanding that what people are yelling about on Twitter may not actually be a reflection of what is in your state statute is is a pretty important takeaway. Thanks for listening to CrossCut Reports. This episode was reported by Megan Burbank and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. The story editor was Ryan Famuliner. 
Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to CrossCut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docu-series we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.